0: Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen. Thank you, Amy. That's a blessing. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker, and take your Bibles in turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and while, or chapter 2, rather. While you're doing that, you can, if you have little ones up to grade 6 and you'd like them to be in a different service, you're more than welcome to keep them here. But if you'd like them to be in another service, there is one available to you. Uh, follow the herd as they head out. Your teachers will meet you in the foyer, and we'll see you after the service picking them up you turn in your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's just my demented sense of humor, I guess. I thought that was funny. I had to ask somebody, is this funny? You know, because I don't want to put stuff up that's not funny. If you didn't think it was funny, my apologies. I I thought it was funny. Anyway, (laughs) we're going to return to our study this morning, Uh, part five, as we work our way through this particular section, God's wisdom on display. But we're turning to a, a verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And I've entitled it God's Plan for a Healthy Church, as God gives the remedy here in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians for some of the things that beset the church. It then applies, of course, to all churches as they experience some of these things. And so it's very beneficial to the church and a great study for us. And we're really just getting our feet wet. And Paul had begun, has begun this letter by really calling those who read the letter saints. Uh, as you re- are reminded, he reminds them of the benefits of being a saint in verses 1-9 through 9 of chapter 1. And then he begins in verse 10 to address the main catalyst of a healthy church, and that is the character trait of unity. And so that's his first thing that he wants to, as the Holy Spirit to carry him along, to take on. And he's doing that by addressing some problems with division, obviously. If you're having trouble with unity, then there has to be some division problems. And although Paul uses his situation within the Corinthian church, which came out of personal preference, preferring one pastor over another, particularly in this church, in Corinth. Uh, the specific situation has application for all differences and all preferences and all of that as we've seen. Now, I'd like you, if you would, to preserve our time. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to read all the way through the end of that chapter. Allow the Holy Spirit to begin his work in our own heart as we desire very much to know what he has to say to us. And as uh, you are preparing to read together with me in your copy, I'm going to remind you that, as I often do, that time in the Word is paramount for Christians, that for believers who know Christ, uh, that time in the Word on a daily basis is imperative for your growth. It's impossible for you to grow in maturity as the Lord would desire, and in knowledge, uh, as uh, Peter tells us to add to your faith knowledge, that's knowledge of his Word, the understanding that comes from time in the Word. It's very important for your ministry. It's very important for your personal life, for your thought life, and all areas of application. Uh, the blessing, of course, of daily reading the word will be yours. The holding up of the holy standard and keeping a short sin list and walking in a way that is pleasing to the Lord and able to be witness, uh, witnessing for the Lord in truth and in power are all part of that time in the word. So let me encourage you, if you haven't established a time in the word, this is a great time of year to begin that. I try to encourage people around the first of the year, start that daily reading through the Bible so at the end of the, uh, the year next year, uh, you will have covered a cover, first of, I hope, hundreds of times in your life that the Lord allows you to go through it, and that richness will be yours. So let me encourage you again to do that. You can find a trifold out on the welcome table that can help you do that. So make it, unveil that, uh, yourselves of that if you would. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, and it begins with, And when I came, I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard, and I'll give you some verse cues so that whatever version you're reading uh, out of, we can stay together. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse 4, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, Yet... We do yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9, but just as it is written, things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by none. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Stop right there. As we've been tracking together through this first chapter of Corinthians, we have seen Paul make the connection as he works on this area of unity in the church between divisions and human wisdom. Paul has connected divisions and factions and preferences and all that with human wisdom, and he used a number of ways to illustrate it. And then Paul proceeded to give a number of reasons why they are to shun human wisdom and focus on the main thing, which is the gospel. We saw the first reason that they gave to avoid faction and, from verse 19 and division is that this worldly system that promotes faction and division is all going to be swept away. So Paul says, listen, all the stuff that goes along with human wisdom is going to be swept away by God. And we looked at that extensively and the cross-references that Paul has in Isaiah earlier. Secondly, we saw that the wisdom of man is powerless, verse 21, Uh, to do anything of eternal value. It's powerless. It doesn't accomplish anything of eternal value and those who are focused on division, those who are focused on faction, uh, those who are swept away by those kinds of things are not doing anything of eternal value either and so it becomes very specific. Thirdly, Paul says of man's wisdom, man's greatest wisdom and highest thoughts are infinitely eclipsed by the most simple of God's thoughts and the smallest representation of his power. That's a, a very humbling thought if you think about that as as, uh, Paul is connecting human wisdom and faction, he says, listen, the most lofty thought that man can think and the most power that man can have are infinitely eclipsed by the simplest of God's thoughts and the smallest representation of his power. And so a very important point Paul makes in verse 25. And then we saw, uh, finally, as a rebuke against the wisdom of man, God just plainly says he doesn't need its rank, he doesn't need its influence, he doesn't need its wisdom to accomplish the most important thing on earth. Verses 27 through 28 really made that clear. He doesn't need man's wisdom to do the things that are important and to do the things that make the difference. And we find, of course, as uh, we connect with that, that uh, as Paul is directing it towards these people, the people who are involved in those factions, people who are involved in those types of things, uh, really uh, find that they're not involved in anything that of, is of any eternal value for any length of time. So they're connected with man's wisdom, they're connected with the thoughts of man, and really find themselves powerless to do things that really matter. Now, in this next section, and we're gonna just leave it right there if you need to catch up with that, lots of application, once again, I say as we work our way through this first section, and numerous other sections too, there are more applications than there are time to go through all of them. And so I encourage you as you uh, read through the Word, if there are questions that you have and you, wanna, you want me to cover them, let me know and we'll do a and A. Uh, But I also would just encourage you to continue to read through the word and cross-reference, and you will find the answers you're searching for and the connections that you need to make. You have the same tutor and the same text that I have, so let me encourage you to do that uh, and let the Holy Spirit guide you. Now, we're going to move on. This next section, Paul's going to illustrate all of his former points, and he's going to start with himself. So that's basically what's going to happen. Paul says he gave those points we just went through. Now he's going to use himself as the illustration. So look at verse 1, if you would. Paul says, when I came to you... Brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Paul says, remember when I came to you? Paul says, recall in your mind, if you would, those early days of the ministry that I had among you when I came. Was I using fancy words? Was I using human opinions when I brought the gospel to you? And what's the answer to that? The answer to that is no. No. Uh, the, go- you know, the gospel is everything, God's gospel is everything, it's the main thing, and God determined to save man, not by human wisdom, uh, but by the gospel. So when Paul came to Corinth, he didn't come as an orator, he came as a witness, and it says, proclaiming to you, so look back at verse 1, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. And there's our first stop in your notes, if you're a note taker. Uh, as an example to the church, he came declaring the witness of God. So, Paul always gives an opportunity to change direction. If you've been caught up in human wisdom, if you're caught up in the factions, Paul says, if these are the things that have dominated your life, realize that what you're doing is powerless. God's going to sweep all that away. You're not really involved in the main thing. Paul says, listen, when I came, I came declaring to you the witness of God. Paul said, I came here to give you God's revelation. And that really has a very centering effect on the church. If you're having some trouble, if you're going back and forth amongst those who sow discord or faction and every church has those things, remember that centering effect is declare the witness of God. Find a place where you can discharge that ministry. And that's a great example to all of us. And it's what all of us are to do. And that's what really goes on here from week to week, declaring the witness of God. It's what Jim Ferguson was doing uh, long before I ever came, uh, it's, uh, and he's still doing it in the Auditorium Bible class. It is what goes on here every week. It's what I do every week. It's what John does in the evenings. It's what goes on uh, downstairs in the Sunday school classes and in children's church classes, what Jason does with the students. So it happens in children's church, Sunday school, evening programs, all that kind of thing, declaring the testimony of God. And people will hear us on the radio or live, and they will contact us, and usually several times a month we have calls that come in from uh, programs that go off on the radio, and people will say, to some extent or another, and of course there's always some connection to some issue they were dealing with at the time, but just this, we appreciate the fact that you teach verse by verse through a book. I've had people come to me at the end of a service who have come here from other denominations and said... Uh, And I quote, I've never heard anybody teach verse by verse through the Bible in my life. Now, these are people who are 50 or 60 years old and have never heard anybody teach verse by verse. And that's so sad to me because they've missed out on so much of what the Lord would have them to do and have them to understand. And so very important that that is what we do. A lot of people uh, are tired of three points in a poem and they don't come to church for that. And they're not looking for that. Mature people are not looking for three points in a poem. They're tired of politics all the time the National Republican Convention at the church and whatever, okay? They don't want that. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. They're tired of what we should think about the economy and then the pastor standing up and telling them what they should think and and tired of of Christian social clubs and and, uh, social gospels. God's people are best served by God's word. And it happens, Paul says, by declaring the testimony of God. And Paul Paul says, when I came to you, that's what I did. And you know, when, when we mention a political leader or a policy, it comes as an application of God's thoughts through his word and not as our main point. And that's on purpose. I don't want to spend time talking about what I think about all of that because that's not important and that doesn't accomplish anything in your life. I, I want to spend time teaching you what God thinks and then you'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work and know what God thinks so you can look at, the, at those things and, and make a proper application of God's word in your own life. And that's, I'm just spilling to you a little bit of my uh, motivation as I teach the word of God to not only show you, and as many of you I don't have to show because you know how to do this, but to show you what it looks like to study God's word verse by verse and how to cross-reference those things. And secondly, to show you that that's the main thing and that my own thoughts and what I did on vacation and, and all of that stuff and illustrating with my own life is irrelevant and accomplishes nothing in your life. And Paul says this is very important and our teachers here do this as well. They, they make sure that they are proclaiming to you the testimony of God. And when you turn on the TV and you listen to some of these guys And I I just remind it because every now and then I scroll through just for a laugh. I guess that's probably bad. I need to confess that. But I do that for a laugh. They're supposedly teaching you the Word of God. But the thing about it, you think the Bible was just one positive book. And that's all it is as you listen to guys teach. Now, I know that you probably have the same experience perhaps. But sometimes when I get through reading the Bible, it feels like I just had a wrestling match. And I didn't do well. Okay? Because the Bible's not all positive. And I'm kind of digging through it. and, And I get all done. I'm just thinking, Man. I don't think I understand all that, and what I did understand, man, I'm not doing very well at that. And all. That's, that's how the Bible really is. See, it's not just one big positive book. And I feel like I'm beaten down, I can't really take it. And, you know, sometimes it's really positive, and that's great, and you praise the Lord in the times that you read it. And sometimes, it, a lot of times, it isn't. And what we don't need is men and women with all kinds of flowery words that mean nothing. Okay, Paul, Paul says, I didn't come offering you a whole bunch of human verbiage and a whole bunch of human pers- you know, preferences and perspective. I told you the testimony of God, not my opinion. And that is a very centering, as we said, effect on the church. That's what needs to happen. So it's what needs to happen in your own life. And so he reminds them of what he did. And he reminds them that the material is not original. And probably perhaps if you've taught, you know if people said, hey, I really appreciated that, uh, what you said. And I, I said a hundred times if I said once, it's not original. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. But thank you for your encouragement. The, 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 it's not original here, that what I'm teaching you. Now Look at verse 2. For I determined to know nothing, Paul says, among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The testimony of God is Christ, the gospel, and as Paul reminded them in verse 13, Christ is not divided, okay? The main thing is this, and if you're centering on that, you're not gonna be divided. And uh, you know, Matthew 17, this is an interesting passage, I was just kind of cross-referencing, kind of a, backhead, a backdoor way to look at this, but in Matthew 17 too, during Jesus' transfiguration, Peter had some opinions, and I'd like you to hear these because as you read the dialogue, it kind of, it's absurd, what Peter did. But this is during the transfiguration of Christ that one time while he was on earth that we got a glimpse of who he really was and what he really looked like. And it says this, it says in verse two, it says, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Catch this now, okay, I want you to get the context, okay? Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah, okay? In front of Peter, Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah. That's pretty amazing. Okay, Now, I think if you put yourself in that place, you'd probably be pretty humbled. I mean, this is Moses and Elijah. Jesus is speaking. We're seeing God's glory in, in Christ. And here's the thing. Peter interrupts this conversation. Okay, Read it. Okay? Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. It doesn't say he was talking with Peter. He's talking with Moses and Elijah. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, in the middle of the conversation with Moses and Elijah, Okay, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses and Elijah. Now, here's a quick question for you. Do you think that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about building a hut for each of them so they could dwell there? I mean, I realized it was during the Feast of Tabernacles, and that was something that was in Peter's mind. But in all, in all honesty, do you think that was the conversation that was going on? Hey, it'd be great if you stuck around for a while. Let's build a, you know, build a couple of huts for you to live in out of the branches and the, and the leaves and all that. That'd be great for you to hang around. Um, no. Uh, I think you can easily say and safely say, no, they weren't talking about that, right? What were they talking about? The plan of God? Jesus' impending death? The gospel? So Peter interrupts the conversation, and so God interrupts Peter. Now catch this. Verse 5 actually says, while he was speaking, so Peter's given his great ideas while Jesus is having this conversation with Moses and Elijah, and while he's speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That's important, isn't it? That's a centering effect on the church, isn't it? You have a bunch of opinions, perhaps, and in Corinth, obviously, they did, and Paul had to bring them to light. And, and right here we see Peter with a bunch of opinions, and I've, I've given you some examples of Peter before uh, of things that he did. Get on board, Peter. Okay, you're not thinking about the main thing, Peter. I'm not looking for your opinions and speculations and preferences. God says, listen to Jesus. He's accomplishing my plan for the redemption of mankind. This is the thing that you want to be thinking about. And as Paul deals with this ununified church in Corinth, full of division, he says, remember how I came among you? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Isn't that much better? That's much better, isn't it? And when we come together here at Berean on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day it is for our teaching time, wherever it is, at home or whatever, you know, right at the beginning, uh, we, whenever we meet together, uh, we say, let's open our Bibles, because that's the thing, all right? I've heard, ai uh, went to a pastor's conference many years ago, a guy that you, well, you would well know from the radio, whom you probably like, uh, James McDonald is teaching, he gets up there, and uh, at the place where we were, it, they just decorated the platform to no end. I mean, the thing is, there's flowers, there's this big, you know, lights and everything, he's like, and all the lights are out, and you know how we're sitting, you know, we're trying to take notes, and the lights are out. Just kind of focusing, he's like, whoa! He goes, uh, can we turn on the lights in the auditorium? That'd be great. And like, turn some of the lights off down here. And you know, I really don't need all this stuff. Just give me a clear platform and I'll I'll just preach from that. And then he goes, and this may offend you. Now this is an ecumenical meeting, okay? This is put on by a radio station. You got guys from every possible denomination. He goes, now this may really offend you. He goes, but if you're one of those guys who gets up and you talk for 15 minutes and you haven't said, let's open God's word together, you need to sit down. Here's what he said, direct quote. You need to sit down and shut up and let somebody get up there who knows that God has a word, God wrote the word, he's got something to say, and it's the best for the church. Of course, a lot of us are going, yeah, but not all of us were going, yeah, okay? But that's it, isn't it? Paul said, when I came among you, I came declaring you the word of God. That's what I came to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. That's the most important thing. Let's look at what God says. Not politics, not economics, not social issues, not viewpoints, not opinions, not human ideas, but what God has to say. And that's very important for the church. Couple of quick illustrations for the Word of God of what that looks like. Okay, Second Corinthians four one. Paul says, "Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart, no matter what happens. We stick with it." Paul says, um, verse two. But we have renounced the things hidden. That's secret sins. If you think about it, that's um, hypocrisy, things like gossip, immorality, thought life, things hidden in the darkness of life before salvation. Because of shame, Paul says. So when you come to faith, there's Shame connected with what you used to do, or there should be, and and Jesus deals with that on the cross. So uh, not walking in craftiness, or adulterating the word of God, so not tampering with the message of the gospel, you're not tampering with it, you're giving it exactly like it is. But by the manifestation of truth, and that's the measure, right, of the message, how does it line up with what God said in his word? That's always the measure of the message, okay? Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, the primary task in ministry is to manifest the truth of God. At that point, you have a clear conscience, Paul says. That's what you're supposed to do. Now, another illustration, 1 Timothy 4.13, after uh, giving Timothy a, a number of things that he is to tell the church in Ephesus that relates to their conduct, Paul says to Timothy this, until I come, give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Now, that's pretty simple, isn't it? That's pretty straightforward. That's what's supposed to happen. And Paul follows up with Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, too. He just says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? Paul says, I solemnly charge you. Why, Paul? Because God's going to judge the living and the dead. And I can't understand for the life of me how any man can call himself a minister of God and do anything but teach the word of God. And then he says, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with patience and instruction. Now, the context here is clear. Paul's talking to another pastor, Timothy, and telling him what he needs to do, but certainly has application back to 1 Corinthians 2.2. Why is that? Well, because Paul's following his own instruction, isn't he? He's doing exactly what he told Timothy to do. He's not saying to Timothy, do one thing and then he's doing something else. He's using his pattern is an example of what the church needs to do to refocus on the main thing. Leave behind the opinions, set aside the wisdom of man, Paul says. Don't let issues get you off track, as we saw earlier in this passage, uh, as the Jews and Greeks did. And Paul says, and that won't be easy to do. In verse 3 he says, for the time will come when will not endure sound doctrine. Has that time come? I, w- I think you could say yes. People don't want to, they don't want sound doctrine. Churches are full of people who won't endure sound doctrine, and they won't listen to correct teaching. They're just gonna do what they're gonna do, no matter what you say. And because there's a demand for that, there'll be a supply that says, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So in other words, you can just look at it this way. People will go from place to place until they finally find someone who will say what they want to hear. That's what happens. Okay? That's what happens today. That's what happens in Paul's time. It's certainly happening today. Just place to place. I don't like what's getting said there. I don't like what they're doing. Okay, and that's the final outcropping, beloved, of division. Can I just tell you that? Eventually, it's just, I don't want to put up with this anymore. Even though much of that is not truth, even though much of that is division based on false understanding or human wisdom, eventually people just say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go and hear something that I want to hear. Now, so Paul warns Timothy about that and says, listen, just give yourself to uh, the teaching of the word and do it in season and out, whether you feel like it or not. And I'm charging you in the presence of God, preach the word. And give yourself until I come to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And Paul then follows his own example. Now, look back at 1 Corinthians 2 2. Paul says this For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, he's not saying there that, that he denied the rest of Scripture, because we know in Acts 18, he says that for 18 months I declared to them the entire counsel of God. And so Paul's just kind of wrapping it up. His emphasis, of course, included the cross. Uh, the means by which God has made redemption available to men. Uh, God's revelation really is what he's pointing at, as opposed to human speculation. That's Paul's message. And that's his example to the Corinthian church and his example as he told Timothy what to do that he's doing himself, okay, to get them back on track. Now, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 through 4. Let's move there. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. There's your point number two, okay? Paul's example, showing them by example. And when he came, he wasn't arrogant and he wasn't confident. Now, this is the third time Paul has said, se- it's gonna be three times Paul's gonna say this. It's the second time he said it already, okay? Back in verse one, he emphasizes it, a very similar statement in verse one. What does it say there? It says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. So Paul's making sure they understand, listen, I showed you by example I wasn't arrogant and I wasn't overconfident, okay? And that, no doubt, struck a chord with those who were factious. Why is that? Because one thing about those who like to sow discord is, and those that hang on to their own opinions and preferences are, and no doubt he was dealing with that in Corinth, is there's nothing meek and trembling about them. Okay? They're usually very arrogant and very boastful and very proud and very uh, hard-hearted and stiff-necked and all of that, Paul was dealing with that in Corinth, okay? You want to sow discord, you're probably not going to be, in that example, er, you're going to be without arrogance or without confidence. And you're, not going to be, um, you're not going to come uh, without superiority of speech or wisdom. And, all, and we're going to see it one more time, Paul's going to emphasize, this because that's, how, that's the opposite of the way Paul came, is what was going on there. Now Paul will talk about this arrogance in chapter 5, really directly, but Paul didn't come that way. Verse 3 he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And That doesn't sound like Paul, does it? Now, we're we're not talking about physical illness here, okay, as some uh, commentaries are talking about, because we see two of these words used in a couple other places as it deals with Paul's ministry. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation, here it is, with fear and trembling. Same two words, look at Ephesians 6.5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And so both of them have to do with uh, bringing to bear uh, a mental anxiety over an important issue. So you're wrestling with this, you wanna make sure that you're doing it, you're coming at it with the right heart attitude. And so Paul says, I was in such urgency over you. That's how I came. Uh, He was in Philippi, he had to run for his life. You remember we went through this history at the beginning of of our study in Corinthians. He was thrown out of Thessalonica, he had to run for his life. And then the Thessalonians traced in Berea, to Berea, and he had to flee there. And uh, so he gets to Athens. He sees uh, the city is given over to idols. He gets to Mars Hill. He gives this great argument uh, to these guys who call him a seed picker, and uh, it wasn't a great response. And then he comes to Corinth, and he's all alone. He's very discouraged, and he sees this city just dominated by sinfulness, and it, it has this terrible mental anxiety over the lostness of the city, and he knows that he's hopeless in himself to do anything. That's the idea. Okay, I came to you with fear and trembling. Much anxiety over this and so Paul says again in verse 4 and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom because that's what divisive people are doing see persuasive words of wisdom I didn't come that way persuasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power I was in a lot of anxiety over you I knew I didn't have the capability to make any difference in your life apart from just committing myself to what the word of God says so as an example to the church at Corinth he reminds them number three that when he preached you preach with God's power. Paul says, I didn't come to persuade you using the right words. I didn't come to exact uh, some right response from you to manipulate the crowd and have people stand up who were seated in the crowd or whatever, so that you would be manipulated into responding in some way uh, because I need you to do that and the church needs it or whatever the, resp- whatever the justification is. That's not it, see? I came to let the spirit flow, let his power flow, and his, power were, and his spirit and power were able to change lives. And he didn't start in some illustrious way, did he? I mean, he, he led somebody, he led a uh, lady to Christ and then, and, and then he got the, uh, uh, the chief of the synagogue to Christ and a couple other people and that was his little core. And then he moves one door over, right? He says, okay, Jews, I'm out of here. And he goes one door down and that's where he stays for 18 months. And he just preaches with, with much anxiety. Uh, fear and trembling, and with weakness. Paul was tired. He came there worn out from the ministry, and worn out from being thrown out of cities and let down in baskets and whatever it was. And he just said, listen, I had a lot of anxiety and I didn't have any power in myself to do anything. So I just gave you the word of God and let God's word and God's power, his demonstration of the spirit of power, work. And he did that, all of that, verse 5, look there if you would, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Once again, wasn't making disciples for himself, not Paul followers. They would see what God was doing and give God praise and follow the Lord. Now look at verse 6. Yet, he says, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Paul says, it may not be the world's wisdom, And you may think it's foolish, and you may say it's simple, and you may say it's simplistic, but we're speaking wisdom. And Paul says, you may not see it as such, but it is. And Paul says, I reject human wisdom. And he says, the problem is that only the saved are going to know it. That's what he means when he says, among those who are mature. And that word mature, teleos, it's an adjective, very important adjective here. It refers to full-grown and mature believers in this context. Full-grown and mature believers. And I'll show you why it means that. It's used the same way, as we find later, in the letter where he contrasts two places where believers could be. In particular, 1 Corinthians 14.20, he says, Brethren, and here it makes it very clear, and using the same words, he says, Do not be children in your thinking. Yet, in evil be infants, so be very immature in your understanding of evil, but don't be immature in your thinking as it relates to Christ, as it relates to the church, as it relates to conduct, you can fill those things in. But in your thinking, be mature. There's the word, okay? In your thinking, be mature. And I think it's safe to say that those who are factious, those who are divisive there in Corinth, those who sow discord, as we saw in the opening portion of the letter, would be considered by Paul as not mature, but as children. Why do I say that? Well, a number of places here in the scriptures we're going to see. But in Ephesians 4.13, I think, Paul explains this process of church growth. He uses the word again. This is very important. Same wording, mark this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians, isn't he? The first topic he's bringing up is unity. So until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So same wording, the knowledge of the Son of God, a richness in what uh, God's word says, an understanding of Jesus and his message, of his mission, all of that kind of stuff is, is poured into that, the knowledge of the Son of God. 2A, here's the word, mature man, mark that, same thing, right? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So if you just want to qualify it, then that's what it's going to look like, okay? Maturity. The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does that look like, Paul? As a result, here's the opposite. As a result, if if you're not doing this, this is what it looks like. As a result, we're no longer to be children, so that's the immature, tossed here and there by waves and and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So whatever comes along, whatever somebody says, you're going back this way, then then you're back over this way, and you're just kind of listening to, and that's what was going on in Corinth, see? Not tossed around, Paul says, by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, uh, words whispered, words talked about behind, whatever. Those are the kinds of things Paul said don't, are not included in those who are mature. Writer of Hebrews uses the same word as well, same context. uh, Hebrews 5.14, this is a great illustration here. I mean, it's just so specific, okay? But solid food is for the mature, Right? Who, because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil because of practice because of time in the word because of disciplining your mind because of making sure that you're just putting aside dead works and saying no to those who want to sow discord all that because of practice can discern good and evil immature can't discern good and evil and kind of follow away whatever wind of doctrine comes along paul says don't be that way uh in 1 corinthians 2 the writer of hebrews says listen solid food is for mature because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil then chapter 6 verse 1 same thought doesn't even break there therefore leaving the elementary teachings about Christ let us press on to maturity oh well what are the elementary teachings of Christ well not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God of instruction about washing and laying on of hands and a resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment so all those things are the elementary teachings of Christ given to those who are children in the faith who grow up and this we will do if God permits. Paul says, this is where we're, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, this is where we're headed. Paul's injunction in 1 Corinthians, this is where we want to go. Paul says in Ephesians, we're going we're to we're get to the mature man, the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, don't be children in your thinking, be, but yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So Paul, as Paul deals with them then, there's a sense that is that the Christian who has matured here, So according to Paul, the only people who know uh, this is wisdom are mature Christians. Those are the ones who are going to recognize it, okay? The world thinks it's foolishness. The world thinks it's a stumbling block, and Paul's already said that. Believers involved in factions, they haven't recognized it yet either, perhaps up until this point, as Paul points it out to them. But those who are mature recognize the significance and importance of this conduct, this centering on the teaching of Christ, this centering on the gospel, this uh, forming yourself in unity around the main thing, okay? Those who are mature recognize the significance and importance of conduct that Paul is requiring that they manifest, okay? And I think you can illustrate this in your own mind, and I was just kind of thinking through this this week. Just think about it this way, and you don't have to raise hands or do anything or indicate you're even processing this, but if you, um, some of you can't remember when you weren't a Christian, okay? I mean, you came to faith as, as a child, chronological age. I say that because... Everybody has to come to faith as a child to come to faith at all. But you came to faith at a young, chronological age. You you don't remember a time uh, when you weren't a believer. And if someone asks, you know, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, like, all my life. I mean, I've been a Christian all my life. I don't know anything else except being a believer. And maybe you're in that same boat. Maybe ever since you were a little kid, that's all you've ever known. You've always been a Christian. That's a great thing, okay? It's, It's a wonderful thing. And maybe you can think back to a time that you weren't a Christian, and think about your reactions to the gospel. Perhaps you remember before you became a believer, usually your reaction to the gospel was probably pretty stupid and pretty foolish, right? You reacted badly to the gospel. You criticized the gospel, you rejected it as stupid, you thought it was for weak people, or or whatever. You just said, there's a lot of hypocrites in the Christian church, I'm not interested in being a hypocrite, right? Or whatever you wanted to say, and you've heard all of this if you've witnessed, okay? And the gospel didn't seem very profound, did it? And when you've been a a believer since a child, if you haven't grown very much, the gospel doesn't seem that profound to you either, okay? And uh, and then the Holy Spirit, if you weren't a believer from childhood, the Holy Spirit went to work and he went to work drawing you. And if you came to faith as a child, he was at work drawing you. And then Christ dying on the cross began to make sense and, and you repent and confess and ask him to be your savior and your Lord. And the interesting thing about that is that both parties here could be at the same maturity level, not moving yet beyond The superficial, which is what the book of Hebrews was addressing. Okay, you haven't moved past the elementary teaching of Christ. You'd be at the same level because when you became a believer, listen, the message of Christ should have taken on some depth to it. Okay, and some of those depths would appear to be beyond your ability to sound them. You can relate to that, right? If you've grown in maturity, then the message of the gospel has become much deeper that you understood as a child if you've been a Christian all your life, and much deeper than you evaluated before you became a believer if you became a believer as a young adult or as an, as an adult. And sometimes, and the longer I think that you've been a Christian, by the way, if you've been maturing, the deeper the, and more unsearchable all of this should appear. And sometimes you're gonna feel like the Apostle Paul in Romans eleven 33, aren't you? In fact, it becomes more and more, uh, more, and more times you're gonna feel that way as you read through the word of God over and over, okay? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and His unfathomable his ways. So the indicator, beloved, that, that maturity is happening is this obedient response to this wonderful depth of the gospel as it's presented. Growth in the understanding and application of biblical truth. That's kind of the indicator that some maturity has gone along. You begin to see that the gospel is a lot deeper than just confession of sin and repentance from uh, uh, deeds that were uh, wicked, see? It's more than that. That's that's the initial teaching of the gospel. That's the initial teaching of what the Lord wants you to know. And we will, as the writer of Hebrews says, move beyond that in maturity. And the depth comes there. And you start to see the requirements of those who've been justified by faith and what that's going to look like in your life, see. And that's what Paul is ultimately appealing to in his prolonged illustration, see. He takes a lot of time with this. He tells them earlier that he knows that they have divisions based on human wisdom and human preference. And their unity is broken because of that. And he reminds them that in all such division, based on human wisdom, it's all going to be swept away and it's powerless to accomplish what God wants to be done in the church. And he says, when I came to you, I came preaching Christ and Christ isn't divided. And the world thinks that this is foolish. And those involved in this division are using the wisdom of the world. And so Paul says, I bring a different way to do this. And those that are mature will understand it and do it. You get that? See, that's so clear. As you keep in mind, as Paul goes far afield to illustrate this, he's always coming back to the issue that's in the church and what needs to be the main thing. And when churches are vibrant, that is the main thing. And those that are, are wise are able to put down that kind of factious appeal, see? Now look at verse 6, if you would, 1 Corinthians 2.6. Paul says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those that are mature, so we know what that means, Okay. It's going to resonate with those who have grown in their faith. It's not going to resonate with anybody who's not a believer at all. It's going to still be foolishness. But we are speaking wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are, Paul says, passing away. Then he encourages the church in the most marvelous way about what is available to those who are believers. Things that cannot be known by the natural man. We're going to look at that just in the time remaining which lead to a wonderful reality that's going to impact every part of their life, especially their conduct. Skip up to verse 16. When you do that, we're going to get there eventually. We won't get there today. But look at verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 2. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? No one. But we have, nobody's instructed the Lord, but we have, what's it say? A mind of Christ. What a wonderful thing to remind the Corinthian church of, see? You have the mind of Christ. The reason we have spiritual wisdom is because we have the mind of Christ. And Paul's going to come back to their conduct at the beginning of chapter 3, and he's going to say this after he says you have the mind of Christ. He's going to say, and I, brethren, catch this, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. You have the mind of Christ, he said. And yet I couldn't speak to you as spiritual men, but as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not even able. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy, how do you know that's there? Just since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not still fleshly and, still, and, and are you not walking like mere men? Aren't you walking like the world, Paul says, if that's still those things indica- are indicated in your life? That's quite the accusation. Wow, that's a setback for those who are reading this in Corinth. If there's, if there's jealousy, if there's strife among you, Christ isn't divided. So if it's still there, you're walking like mere men, see? You're like, you're like infants. For when one says, I'm of Paul and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not still mere men? So once again, Paul just uses the example they give and they're having trouble with, but it applies everywhere, doesn't it? Whatever it is you're saying, it's apart from the unified teaching of sticking with what the Word says and doing that, and be unified in making sure the gospel's clear in whatever ministry you have. Listen, you're just off on this other tangent, and that's embarrassing, isn't it? In light of all the things that are true about them and true about every believer, There has to be some maturity happening, see? So Paul's going to apply all of this, what spiritual maturity should look like as it applies to unity and a lot of other things as we look on deeper into 1 Corinthians. The health of the church is God's desire, and maturity brings with it the outworking of a healthy church, see? Now, let's move on to verse 7 and following and see how far we can get. And just as a footnote, there are a number of ways we could break this down. You could get really complicated with your outlines, you know, and uh, I, I would suggest to you, if you're doing a seminary paper, you might not make it as simple as I'm about to make it, all right, because it's going to be like two pages and you need 15. So, you know, make it more, uh, more complex, but here's the thing. Paul's, Paul's jumping off this explanation from verse 6. Here's what he says, okay? Yet we, do not, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So, break right there for a minute. It, it is true wisdom, not the world's wisdom but the wisdom of God that only believers will understand. So we saw that. Now verse seven, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Verse eight, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So we're talking about then, pause right there, we're talking about understanding godly wisdom. But really, we could just break it down this way, okay? And this is what Paul's doing, it's a very simple way to look at this passage, verses seven through 16. Number one, godly wisdom or true wisdom cannot be known or discovered by the world, okay? And number two, godly wisdom can only be known by believers, and that's the other side of it, okay? True wisdom, that is ultimate truth regarding God, man, destiny, salvation, all of that, is not known to the natural man's mind. Yet, beloved, all the religions of the world are efforts on the part of man to discover God, to find him. Christianity says you can't find God, he found you. Luke 19. So you're not working up all through all the religions. And we talked about this as we went through Romans 1, didn't we? People are not working up through all the religions. Finally, ah, I found the right one. The Lord says you've fallen from the understanding of God, and you fell into all of that stuff, and your mind became dark, and, and a vacuum didn't exist there very long, and you sucked in the wisdom of the world. And Paul just kind of repeats this here, if you will. The true wisdom, ultimate truth regarding God, man, destiny, salvation, all of that is not known to the natural man's mind. It's not possible for him to know it. And yet all the religions of the world really pursue that, Christianity says, you can't find God, he found you, Luke 19.10, right? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, back to verse 6, okay? Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. This wisdom that is available is not the wisdom of the world. And the word age there is an important word, eon. It just has to do with a period of time. So in context, Paul is just using it to point to a world system. Every different time, there's a different philosophy of the world, right? There's, uh, and they just keep coming and going and coming and going and coming and going, and all of them have come to nothing, and all the worldly wisdom has contributed to you get you to zero. That's what Paul says. Okay? The wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the next era, the wisdom of the next era, the wisdom of the next one, nothing. It's all passing away. It's all rendered ineffective. Paul says, Whatever age you happen to be living in, we're not preaching that age. Okay? And so it is that, that Paul says that we realize that this ultimate truth is outside the boundaries boundaries of the wisdom of this particular era and every era that comes after, or every era that came before. It's outside all of that. Okay? We speak, he says. God's wisdom. We speak God's wisdom. He identifies the wisdom. It's God's wisdom. We're not speaking something from this system or from this world. Rather, it's from whom? From God. He's talking about divine, supernatural wisdom. Yes, we're speaking wisdom. The world says foolishness, but it isn't foolishness. And mature believers understand that it's wisdom. And Paul says, and the reason you don't understand it is that it is spoken in a, what does Paul say? It's spoken in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So here's the thing. The reason you don't know it, it, it is, it, it isn't knowable to you. Natural man doesn't know the wisdom of God because God has not given it to man to know. He's put it outside the boundaries of man's capacity. And when you see the world, uh, this word mystery, it doesn't mean something that you have to sort of find your way on. You know, the quest for the wisdom of God, it isn't that at all, see not try to figure out this complex puzzle. It's something that was hidden, but is made clear to believers. It's something, uh, the secret counsels, if you will, which govern God's dealings with the righteous, which are hidden from the ungodly and the wicked men, but plain to the godly. God's made it plain to them. Something that was hidden and is made plain. Okay, It's a secret which is impossible for man to penetrate, but which God has chosen to reveal, if that's easier for you. Something man can't know, but God has revealed. So the word points to the impossibility of man knowing God's secret and the love of God which makes that secret known. And the thing about this is that God isn't making this up as he goes along. The Holy Spirit reveals it, though, uh, Paul, that this wisdom God predestined, it says, God predestined before the ages to our glory. He planned it then. He foreordained it before the ages began, before time began. God had this marvelous salvation plan. So he's not winging it, Okay. Coming along here and seeing man's reaction, then he changes, and then man does this, and now I'm going to change him. You know, it's kind of playing great defense, okay? You're not getting a score. It's not that. It's something God's planned out before the ages, before the world began, see? God has this marvelous salvation plan, and he hid it. And in Christ and in the New Testament, the mysteries were all revealed. And God has opened those mysteries to us, those things which are hidden throughout history. Verse 7, why? To our glory. Unto our glory. Unto our blessing. Unto our eternal excellence. And I want you, would you wrap your mind around that? Okay? Isn't that an overwhelming thought? From before time began, God had a plan of salvation that he would reveal through Jesus in the New Testament for your glory. Imagine that for all time and before time, okay, God planned our eternal blessing. Can you grasp that? I can't grasp that. I, I'm, I'm not able to probe the depths of all of that, are you? That's well beyond the stick, okay? I just believe that by faith. You assimilate it into your life by faith. You say that that's true, and you believe that that's true. Can you plumb the depths of all of that? From beyond all time, before the beginning of time, God planned a salvation a mystery that was going to be revealed in Christ in the New Testament for your glory, for your glory, for your eternal blessing for all time. In the right time, he unfolded this mystery. It's something that even the Old Testament people didn't see. They believed in God and they believed in the revelation coming, though they never saw it, and God accepted that as saving faith. But we know the full revelation of the mystery, not because we comprehended it in our human minds, but because God, having hidden it, now has revealed it. So Paul says, look, it's wisdom. It doesn't come out of your system in the first place, and in the second place, God's hidden it. It didn't come out of your system, and God has hidden it. The world will never know God on its own. Men will never find God on their own. The world will never develop a religion that's true. It can't come from within, there is his own world. God has hidden it from him. In verse eight, we'll just this living illustration of this fact, and we'll close with this, because we're out of time. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, what era was Paul living in? Well, he was really living in the New Testament period, right? And who were the princes of that time, if we just want to be contextual about it? They were the Jewish leaders, right, and the Roman leaders. He says, let me give you an illustration of the fact that the world doesn't know God. Okay, here it is. The leaders of the world have never known God on their own terms by their own reason. They didn't know God. They didn't know truth. For, Paul says, if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's the li- living illustration. Now, these are types of all peoples of all ages who've rejected Christ, Okay, but this is Paul's illustration here. Uh, this is just the pinnacle. This just proves the point. Right? This is just the pinnacle of uh, proving that men do not know and can't come to the knowledge of God on their own. It's just the high point, showing you that man's wisdom can't know God. Here, were all the brilliant you know, Romans and all their education, well-known, well-schooled, all the Jews well-known, well-schooled in the Old Testament law, Jews together with Romans, crucified Christ, executing the Lord of glory. That's what Paul says. That shows you how much they really knew. They didn't know anything. Paul says that's the living illustration. The world can't come to the right conclusion on their own. And it's marvelous the way Paul calls him the Lord of glory in contrast to the humiliation of the, uh, of the crucifixion, isn't it? it just, that's fullness of knowledge, isn't it? When you think about the crucifixion, they just said they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. That's true wisdom. They crucified the Lord of glory. Can you imagine putting those thoughts together? Crucify the Lord of glory. They didn't come to the right conclusion, didn't they? They didn't understand that concept. As a believer, we barely can grasp that concept of the Lord of glory and everything that that means. They did not grasp that concept. They did not come to that conclusion. What a misconstruing of the truth. Just shows how far off human wisdom really is. That's really Paul's indictment on the church. Everything that you're doing, all the factions in there are all based on human wisdom. Here's the pinnacle of the stupidity of human wisdom. And then he makes this living illustration. And the Romans with all their gods and all their power and all their religion didn't know God. They crucified him. And all the Jews with all their information didn't know God and they crucified him. And beloved, Paul doesn't mention this, but I'm gonna close with this because this is appropriate to our season. Herod demonstrated how much he didn't know when he tried to murder Jesus as a child when in the wisdom of God the mystery began to be revealed in a manger born of a virgin. It just shows you that men cannot come to the right conclusion, can they? For God who said the light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where, beloved, in the face of Christ. There's no way for you to know that apart from the Holy Spirit living and witnessing inside of you. There's no way for you to know that. And all the Romans and all their wisdom and all their laws and all of that and all their organization couldn't know it. And the Jews, with all their information about the Old Testament, couldn't know it on their own. And Herod didn't know it. And the only people who knew it was those who assimilated that by faith through the Holy Spirit guiding them. We have to close now, and I I know we barely got our feet wet. We covered a few verses, but we'll come back to it, beloved, and look at it again next time. Lord willing, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you today for a time in your word. What an encouragement, particularly these last words were to us. (sighs) To our glory, you've revealed a mystery to us who know you through the mediation of your Son. To our glory from before time began. It's more than we can grasp, Father, but we're so grateful to know how precious in your sight we are. For Those who've never received Christ as their Savior, who've never proclaimed him Lord, confessing sin in repentance, you stand outside and looking in, and this seems ridiculous to you. May I say to you and appeal to you as Paul did, be reconciled to God through Christ. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Is the Holy Spirit drawing you today? Respond. Before you leave today, let us know that you have responded to the salvation the Lord has proffered to you through the death and resurrection of his Son. It'd be our joy at the season to rejoice with you, of course, in any season, but then to help you to grow. So before you leave, let me know that you came to faith. Let somebody know. Give us a response in that card that's in front of you in the chair. That we can follow up with you and pray for you and rejoice with you. It be our joy. Lord, help us to respond in a way that you see fit. Many applications here as we think about churches of all ages, not just the Corinthian church. And wherever we happen to be and whatever things we happen to be involved with, help them to align with these priorities Paul is making. Help us to be, uh, have understanding hearts. Help us to begin to grow in maturity. Not, uh, again, laying the foundations over and over again, but moving on to maturity, to the unity which is in that reprint of Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 4. Lord, it is our desire to be a church that way. Thank you for working already in Berea, and, and thank you for the teachers who've been here over the years who've just taught who've the, the church the full council, much opportunity to grow, help it to be uh, evident in all of our lives that we have. And Lord, this season that we enter into, help it to be a rich one. And in all the bustle and traffic and all the things that are going on and, the, and many busy things that need to happen, and family and all that, help us to be really enriched in the knowledge of before all eternity past, you have planned this mystery to be revealed. And you've shown us what uh, the glory of yourself looks like in the face of Christ. So as we come together over the next couple of weeks to rejoice in this season, Lord, make it a rich time of worship for us. We're grateful for your work among us. And we give you praise today, and all God's people said, Amen.